if you want to head back toward your seats, we'll, we'll continue on this morning. As you get situated, if you, if you have a Bible with you and you want to flip open to or scroll to Romans chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 12 down to 21 this morning. And we're continuing. So we took kind of a three-week gap in Romans as we talked about what it means to be mission-driven and why we would be mission-driven and, and some practical ways of how we can do that. Then we had Good Friday and Easter. And we did return to Romans for those. We worked through Romans 1, our 5, 1 to 11 during our Good Friday and our Easter services. Um, but we're going we're gonna to really spend uh, a a chunk of time here continuing through the book of Romans. And remember what we're looking at, and that's what does it mean to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? And the first thing that that means for us is that, is that we're gospel-centered, that our lives orbit around the gospel, the decisions we make, the ways that we think, the way we view the world around us. And I just want to give a quick plug for that secret church that's coming up here later this month. If you were with us last year, we walked through the narrative portions of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation throughout 2017, and it just so happened that the secret church simulcast last year was about the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture, and so it lined up perfectly. This year, that secret church uh, simulcast is all about counterfeit gospels. How do we recognize them? Uh, Those who believe in or follow um, a counterfeit version of the gospel, something that looks pretty close to Christianity but isn't? How is it that we can share the truth of the gospel message with those individuals? Um, It fits, again, really well with what we're doing this year. And so I encourage you to sign up. I know that it's six hours. Um, I know that that's a long time, but there are breaks. Um, If you sign up by Monday, tomorrow, you'll guaranteed get one of the books that you take notes in. And if you were here last year, you know that there are a lot of blanks in that little book and he moves really, really quickly. And if you're someone that likes to fill in all the blanks, it's like chaos trying to keep up with David Platt a little bit. But uh, it's a very, very valuable night. And so I want to encourage you to, if, you're, if you've got uh, that night free on your calendar, to go ahead, go to our website, sign up. We'll be sure to get you a book. Um, and have enough for everybody. If you're weighing a couple options on that night, like we could go do fill in the blank or we could go to that secret church thing, um, this is my encouragement. Give strong consideration to coming to secret church. It's a great, great night. Lots of truth from scripture, but also just practical tools for what you can do, how you can take that and use it in your life. So there's my encouragement. Sign up today. You can sign up all the way to the event, but if you want to be guaranteed one of the booklets that you take notes in, Um, we can guarantee that you'll have a book if you sign up tomorrow. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into Romans 5. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for the chance to come together and to worship, God, to gather together as a church body and proclaim your goodness, God, your, your glory, your greatness, to gather together as a church body and lend our uh, commitment and support to a family. Lord, I pray that uh, we would be unified as a body in walking alongside not just a family, but each other, all families in this church in raising and shepherding kids and in fostering healthy marriages. Lord, I pray that 
all the things that we do as a church inside this room on Sunday mornings and outside this room throughout the week. God, I pray that they would bring you glory. Lord, I pray that we would fall in line with the truth of your word. God, I pray that we would anchor ourselves in the truth of the gospel. Lord, I pray that our time together this morning is much more than just an intellectual exercise and understanding words on a page. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be here and take the truth of your word. Help us to see it clearly with our eyes and our minds and our hearts. God, help us to take that truth and apply it to our lives. Lord, would your spirit take your word, use it to help us fall more deeply in love with you, Use it to transform our lives, Lord. Use it to spur us on to making you known in the world around us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to just give a real quick uh, reminder of where we are in Romans. So starting in uh, Romans 3.21 all the way to the end of chapter 5, we've been operating under one section heading here. And it's that God's righteous eternal favor is available to all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul's been spelling that out very, very clearly. Uh, We're going to wrap that section up this morning, and then next week we'll actually begin moving into the next section of the letter of Romans, which will go from chapter 6 all the way to the end of chapter 8. And before we dive all the way into what Paul has to say here in the second half of Romans 5, um. I need to make a confession. And that confession is that a lot of people within our our congregation will say, hey, Tim, can we get together uh, sometime and talk about something? And I love that. And yes, let's try to find a time. And typically, that invitation also includes the following phrase. Maybe we can just grab a cup of coffee. Gross. There's my confession. I, I have no problem with the fact that you love coffee. And I'll even go to a coffee shop with you, but I'm going to get hot chocolate like a nine-year-old. And there's a simple reason for that. It's, coffee's not good. It just doesn't taste good. And I don't know what happens. Because for some reason, people that really, really like coffee have forgotten the fact that when you first drank it, you didn't think it tasted good either. That gets lost somewhere along the way. I don't exactly know how it works. But typically what happens is someone will say, do you want to get coffee or do you drink coffee? And I'll say no. And then I'll say, I don't really like the taste of it. And they'll give me the following. Oh, you just need to keep drinking it. (laughs) To which I think to myself, life's far too short for me to punish myself for six months so that I maybe might start to like coffee on the backside. Or if they don't give you that one, they'll give you this one. Oh, well, you can get like a fill-in-the-blank name that's got like eight words in it that doesn't taste like coffee. If I wanted a milkshake, (laughs) I'd go to a place that specializes in milkshakes and they would be delicious and not have coffee in them. Because when you tell me it doesn't taste like coffee, I'm gonna take one drink and tell you that tastes exactly like coffee with sugar added. The problem is that when you you get that for the first time, whatever age it was when you had your first experience with coffee, you took a drink and it was super bitter. 
You know it was. You might love coffee now. But you know that exact taste and experience that I'm describing as well as I do. And then something happens. Like you really loaded up with sugar for a season of life and then you wean yourself off of that or something. But over time, that starts to taste good to you. I don't know how. But it happens for what seems like the vast majority of adults. Or maybe you have children and you say, I just need the caffeine. I'll deal with the flavor. Somebody understood that over here on my right. Um, It's bitter. It doesn't taste great. But if you keep drinking, it starts to taste a little bit better. What we're going to talk about here, what Romans 5, 12 to 21 centers on, is a theological doctrine known as imputation. It starts bitter. Not really very fun at all. But if we press our way into it a little further, you keep digging into the doctrine of imputation, it starts to taste very, very sweet. It is, it is a wonderful, blessed doctrine. Let me just define it for you very quickly. The word imputation comes straight from Latin, and it's actually an accounting term Uh, though it can have a kind of a legal thrust as well. And in the accounting world, imputation means to apply to one's account. In a legal context, it means to ascribe to or charge an individual based on the actions or conduct of another. Think guilt by association in the legal sense. The term's immensely important. Because here's, here's what it means. Imputation works in two directions. And so in God's eyes, in God's view, and that's really the only view that matters, God thinks of, and therefore it is true, that Adam's sin belongs to each and every one of us. It's credited, it's applied to our account. We're guilty by association. On the flip side of that, the upside is that in justification, God thinks of, and therefore it is true, that Christ's righteousness applies to us. Starts a little bitter. We have to keep working through it because the result is very, very sweet. And right from the beginning this morning, I want to make, uh, I want to call something out and just be very clear and upfront about it. In order to really work with this particular doctrine, our greatest enemy is our hardwired American Western sense of individualism. I was reading uh, an author leading up to this week in this message who was talking about the difference of explaining imputation in an Eastern culture and in a Western culture. In an Eastern culture, you talk about imputation And because they're more communal people, they absolutely get it. Yes, fully understand. Makes total sense. In a Western culture, there's an immediate rebellion or rebuttal up against this doctrine. And so let me just, this is kind of the framework that we're going to operate with over the course of the rest of the morning. It's a quote from a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, God has always dealt with humanity through a head and representative. The whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what happened because of Adam and what has happened and will happen because of Christ. And that's exactly what we're going to see this morning. As Romans works its way from verse 12 down to verse 21, we're going to see what happened in Adam. 
We're going to see a comparison and a contrast between Adam and Christ, and then we'll see what has happened because of Jesus. And kind of the main takeaway this morning is that in God's economy, the work of one is sufficient for many. It's sufficient for many in the work of one man, Adam. It's sufficient for many in the work of one man, Jesus Christ. And so let me just read the first three verses um, of this section. I'm going to start in Romans 5.12 and read through the end of 14. If you've got a Bible, follow along with me. It says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. Romans 5.12 gives a very linear and easy follow to progression, or easy to follow progression. Sin entered the world. Death entered through sin. In this way, death spread to all people because all people sinned. It's a very linear train of thought. Sin came in via one man, that's Adam. Death came because of sin. Therefore, all people die because everyone sinned. It's simple to follow, but the understanding is really important. The issue is not simply that we imitate Adam's sin or that we repeat Adam's sin, though we do both. We do imitate that sin in the fact that God has given us clear commands all throughout Scripture, and yet we break them. God gave Adam a clear command. He broke it. God's given clear commands all throughout Scripture. We break them. So there is an imitation. There's also a repeating that does happen. Adam, in an attempt to make himself like God and rob God of the glory that only he deserves, he took from the tree and he ate. We repeat that all the time. In an attempt to elevate ourselves, we do what we're not supposed to do. We do what God tells us not to do. The bigger issue, the real issue though, and what Paul is drawing out in Romans 5.12 is that we participated in Adam's sin. The language makes that very clear. And I try hard not to like put people to sleep by talking about verbs and verb tenses and things, but it's important here. The last phrase of verse 12, because all sinned. That's written in the aorist tense. That just means that it's describing a simple, past, completed action. It happened one time and it's over. Paul's statement is that you sinned in and through Adam at the same time. It's not just that you could have sinned with Adam if you were in the garden, though you certainly could have. It's not just that you would have sinned with Adam if you were there in the garden, though you certainly would have. The issue is that you did sin with Adam in the garden because you were in Adam. That's what Paul is driving at. And this is where our sense of individualism has to go to die. I want to just ask you a question. What would happen, what would happen to you? What would have happened to you if America had lost the Revolutionary War? Think about that for a minute. 
My suspicion is that most people in the room are thinking to themselves, well, I would be a British citizen, not an American citizen. I would pay in pounds instead of using dollars. I would call it the loo instead of the bathroom. But otherwise, life would be more or less the exact same. Understand how individualistic that thinking is. Because what's the actual reality? If the war had gone quite differently, it maybe would have stretched out longer, right? Your great, 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 great fill-in-the-blank grandparent might have fought and therefore died, in which case you would not exist at all. Or your great, 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 great fill-in-the-blank grandparent would have been impacted by the different outcome of that war, meaning that maybe they lived in a different place, had a different kind of job, met a different person, in which case you probably wouldn't exist at all. See how individualistic our thinking is. Oh no, all that would change are just kind of my circumstances. No, you would be not here more than likely. Why? Because in a very real sense, at the Revolutionary War, if your parents, your ancestors were here at that time, you were in them. They die, you don't exist. Something different happens in their life. Your life looks fundamentally different. What Paul is saying is that you were in Adam. Adam sinned. Adam became a sinner. And from that point forward, everyone born of Adam was a sinner, which leads us to today. You were there when it happened. You sinned in him, with him, in that moment. Therefore, we are sinners, all sinned. Sin entered through one man, death came with it. That was the stated consequence. Because of that, all people die because all people sinned in Adam. There's also another truth here that's really important to point out, and that's that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The difference there is important. Let me illustrate. Growing up in my house, the Fritzen house as a child, uh, you, you weren't late. Like The Fritzen family was going to be uh, 5 to 15 minutes early to just about everything, regardless of the awkwardness that that would create. And that was fine. I mean, it's just the way it was. I am not phased by being early to places and the awkwardness that comes with it. First one there, don't care. Hi, how's it going? My wife really hates that awkwardness, by the way. Uh, And so we have some standoffs. We're going to be early. We're going to be the first ones there. I don't care. Why? I'm a Fritzen. (laughs) I'm early because I'm a Fritzen. I'm not a Fritzen because I'm early. Does that make sense? Tons of people show up places on time. That doesn't make you a Fritzen. But if you are a Fritzen, you're going to be on time. The same is true with sin. You're a sinner, therefore you sin. You were in Adam when Adam became a sinner, and everyone born thereafter is a sinner like Adam, and therefore you sin. It's an important distinction, and to draw out just how true that is, Paul goes on in verses 13 and 14 to offer some proof. And what he's saying in verses 13 through 14 is that Moses 
came and the law was given. It was written down. There were clear commands about what is and what is not sin. But before Moses, that wasn't given. From, and yet, from Adam to Moses, everyone died. All the people who existed from Adam to Moses, they died. Why? Because they were sinners. And because with sin comes death. We know that. Romans says that the law is written on the human heart, that your conscience attests to it. From Adam to Moses, despite the fact that the law was not written down on stone tablets, people were sinning. We know that they were sinning. We know that they were sinners because they were dying. The same is true for us today. People from Adam to Moses, they were in Adam when he sinned in the garden. The same is true for us today. And that's bitter. Our individualistic Western American mindset does not like the thought that Adam's action in the garden would have temporary earthly impacts today, but would also have eternal impacts for our future. That's why when we're talking about sharing the gospel or something like that, in a Western society, what's one of the most common questions? What about the guy in the jungle who's never heard it before? Right? That's our question. What happens to that person? Well, that person's in Adam too. And if ever there should be a reason why you would be driven by the mission of God to share the gospel, it's because there are people in Adam who've never heard it before. We want to use that kind of question and case study, if you will, as a, as a reasoning to like toss out the whole thing because we're so individualistic. Let's keep drinking. I'm gonna read from 15 all the way down to the end of the passage in 21. 14 ends with the statement that he, Adam, is a type of the coming one. And then it goes on. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflowed to the many. And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. Since by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many were made righteous." The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Adam is a type. That's where the end of verse 14 begins. A type in biblical terms is a figure or incident in the Old Testament that prefigures or points us to Jesus. Some Old Testament figures who do that would be individuals like Noah or Moses or David. David's probably the most popular Old Testament type. But incidents can do the same. The Passover does that for us. The bronze serpent in Numbers does that for us. And what 
Paul wants to do here in 15 down to 21 is compare and contrast Adam as a type and Jesus as the fulfillment. And so at the end of it all, Paul lands, he's trying to land us in one truth, one spot, that just as one act of sin brought judgment, so one act of righteousness brought justification. And we're going to work our way through this, but rather than going verse by verse, I'm going to deal with the passage as a whole, and we're going to do so by making a Venn diagram, comparing and contrasting Adam and Christ. And if you're a note taker and you want to draw the Venn diagram, don't make the cardinal Venn diagram sin, which is not leaving yourself enough space to write in the overlap. Get you two circles where there's plenty of space in the middle. We're going to work with the similarities first. There are four things that Paul brings out that are similarities between Adam and Christ. First, there was one act. Each one did one thing that has ramifications for everyone. There was one individual, Adam on the one side, Jesus on the other. That one act by one man has consequences, specifically eternal consequences. And that one act by one man, which comes with eternal consequence, has staggering breadth of impact. It affects everyone, Paul says. So let's look at Adam. The one act Paul calls a trespass. It was an act of disobedience by the one man, Adam. The consequence is that it brought judgment and condemnation and death. Those are the words that Paul uses throughout the passage. And that impact applies to everyone. Why? Because all sinned in Adam. On the other side, there's Jesus. And rather than a trespass, his one act, Paul describes as a gift, as an act of obedience. And the consequence is that justification, grace, and life have come. And that impact can affect everyone. It's good for all who would take hold of grace by faith. One act of sin brought judgment. One act of righteousness brought justification. C.H. Hodge, a 1800s pastor and writer, says it this way, look at yourself in Adam. Though you had done nothing, you were declared a sinner. Look at yourself in Christ. And see that though you had done nothing, you were declared to be righteous. Let me revisit this idea of individualism for a moment. If you want to cling to that notion of individualism, I can show you exactly where it lands you. Paul has gone to pains throughout Romans 1, 2, and 3 to display it. Adam was the consummate individualist. A relationship with God No, thank you. I would rather be God, so I'll do my own thing rather than his thing. I'd rather be an individual, Adam says. Or you can have the imputation that comes by faith in Jesus. He took the sin of all. He voluntarily became the representative of, the representative head. If you want individualism, you can have it and you can join Adam. If you want something different, you have to reject the pride that comes with individualism and humbly allow yourself to be grafted into Jesus. (laughs) 
One thing that Paul wants to make clear as he's working through this section, one thing that scripture makes clear, not just in Romans 5, but all throughout, is that the equation is not that Adam is equal to Jesus. Praise the Lord that that's the case. The equation is that Christ is greater than Adam. Jesus' person is greater in that he is perfect and faithful in all the ways that Adam was broken and unfaithful. His work is greater in that by his one act, he has undone all the acts of brokenness and sin that have come from Adam's one act. The outcome of Christ's work is greater than Adam's because grace and life and justification have completely undone every curse that Adam's sin brought into the world. In fact, what Paul is doing is he's personifying death and life. He's personifying judgment and grace. He talks about them in terms of abounding or multiplying. Look at verse 20. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. I've mentioned before that English doesn't do particularly well with adjectives. When we want to make something better, we just add a word to the front. Oh my gosh, that was great. Oh my gosh, that was really great. Oh my gosh, it was really, really, really great. Right? Paul writes verse 20 this way. Where sin abounded, grace super abounded. It's like he makes his own word there to describe it. Whereas sin was out there kind of running around and having these awful effects on all people, right? Grace came bursting through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. Oh yeah! (laughs) And just shattered that. Where sin was operating in terms of multiplication, grace is exponential. Paul also talks in terms of reigning like a king. And this is where you see most clearly just how much greater Jesus is than Adam. Adam is a type of Christ. He points us to Jesus, but he is a dim, dim shadow that ultimately disappears in the perfect light and radiance of the glory displaying work of Jesus Christ. If you keep drinking the bitter coffee, they say, it starts to taste better. If you keep drinking the doctrine of imputation, it starts to taste better. And this is where it gets very, very sweet. In Romans 5.21 and in verse 17, we're told about these incredible gifts that come to humanity because of Christ. For all those who are in Christ, there are these three unbelievable gifts. Look at verse 21. Grace multiplied even more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also Grace will reign through righteousness. The first gift is that grace reigns. In Adam, what reigns is death and brokenness and sin and condemnation. We see that all over the world. We see it in the people we interact with. We see it in the despair that often marks the lives of the people that are around us. We see it on the news. We see it in our own lives and in our own relationships. But the beautiful truth is that while that abounds, grace superabounds. Grace reigns. No matter how great your sin is, grace reigns. No one is beyond the saving grace of Jesus Christ. No one is so deep in the pit of Adam's sin and brokenness that the light of the grace of Jesus Christ can't blow the shadow of that darkness away. 
No chain of sin is so strong that the grace of Jesus Christ can't break it. Like the seven bowstrings that Delilah tied around Samson's arms in Judges 16, Judges 16 says that they snapped like a strand of yarn breaks above a flame. That is the reigning of grace. It is so much greater than sin. It super abounds. Verse 21 goes on. So the grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace reigns while life reigns. Literally, in Christ, life reigns forever. Think Sandlot here. Forever. And that's not just something you have to wait for in eternity. It reigns right now. Nothing can take it away from all those who have been justified. Everything that was in Adam, all of the sin and all of the death and all of the judgment and all of the condemnation was heaped upon Jesus on the cross. He died, was put in the tomb, and then on the third day, he left all of that dead and defeated and crumpled up on the floor of the tomb while he walked out triumphantly. Life reigns. When we talk about hope triumphing over death at the resurrection, here it is. All that was in Adam has been defeated thanks to all that is in Christ. The death that came through Adam has been obliterated by the life that comes through Jesus Christ. Apparently, this is what happens to coffee if you drink it long enough. It starts to be amazing. There's a third truth, though. It's back in Romans 5, 17, if you want to look up just a couple verses. Since by the one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive the overflow of, of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life? Those who receive justification reign in life. Believers reign. We'll get to talk about this more when we get to Romans chapter 8, but the Bible is clear. Those who are justified with Christ reign with him. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, heirs. Heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. It's unbelievable. And Paul, in Romans 6, 7, and 8, he lays out this pattern for how this works in the life of a believer. Romans 1 through 5 has been all of the kind of dense theological stuff. 6, 7, 8, and then onward is going to move into the practical aspects of what that looks like. He's going to lay it out for us in great detail. Humanity doesn't deserve and can't earn God's righteous eternal favor. It's God's righteous eternal favor is available to all by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And where Paul is headed is that he's about to show us that all who are justified by Christ have new life in him. You're no longer in Adam. You're in Jesus. But there's a pattern to it. And that pattern looks like a lot looks a lot like the mold that Jesus gave us. It involves a dying to yourself. That death involves a crucifixion, a crucifying of your flesh. Those two things are Romans 6 and Romans 7. And then Romans 8 is that there's a helper, the Holy Spirit. And in the end, through Christ, you reign triumphant. Brothers and sisters, thanks to the glorious truth of the doctrine of imputation, you reign. Grace reigns. Life reigns. You reign. In God's economy, the work of one is sufficient for many. But you have to step into it 
by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You have to take hold of the grace that can move you from being in Adam to being in Christ. The only means by which you do that is through faith. I'm gonna invite the worship team up and we're gonna uh, close with what is the application here. Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8 are gonna give us all kinds of practical tools for how we live out grace reigning and life reigning and believers reigning. But the takeaway today is similar to the takeaway or similar to the act of you going to your favorite coffee shop and getting that deliciously awful cup of coffee that you love. You get it and you sit down or you drive off in your car and you savor that coffee. Nothing else needs to be done. It's been delivered for you. Yes, we'll talk about the practicals as we walk through Romans 6, 7, and 8 over the next couple of months, but the practicals will never become reality in your life if you can't learn to savor the truth. The caffeine boost of that coffee doesn't happen unless you drink the coffee. All of the practical outflowings of the blessings of being in Christ don't happen until you learn to savor the truth. That in Jesus Christ, his righteousness has been applied to you. That whereas death and condemnation and sin reigned, grace is triumphant over those. And by faith in Jesus Christ, those who have been justified live in him, where there is grace and life eternally. Let's worship stand up and sing together of a wonderful Savior.